the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Welcome to Lifeline. I'm your guest host, Bob Zadick, host of The Bob Zadick Show, found every Sunday from 8 to 9 a.m. Pacific Time on KFAX's sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Tonight, I invite your calls over the next hour on this evening's topic, economic liberty. More specifically, we'll discuss the barriers that our government puts up that interfere with our economic liberty. Economic liberty is the right which the founders felt was perhaps the most important right that our system of government could grant to us, the right to take care of our lives so long as we don't abuse others in the process. It is a recognition that all of us are generally competent to make the decisions that govern our life in the United States, and we are perfectly willing to enjoy the benefits if we are right and to suffer the detriments if we are wrong. Our government seeks to, doesn't agree with me. Our government believes we are generally incompetent to run our lives, and therefore they feel that we need the government to protect us from ourselves. And in doing so, the government prevents us under penalty of law from taking every making everyday decisions about our economic life what to buy how much to pay who to hire who to work for how much to charge for our services all of these decisions are taken from us because we are incompetent when we examine the issues of economic liberty when you first visit this topic and we will visit it in great detail tonight when you visit this topic The experience is something like, perhaps, the experience of a moviegoer. Remember movies? A moviegoer in a 3D projection theater. You walk into the theater, and you're given these special glasses that you put on. And without these glasses, everything on the screen is blurry and makes no sense. You put on the glasses and everything has great clarity and you enjoy what the theater has to offer. Well, tonight I hope to give all of you 3D glasses, if you will, so that when you examine the laws that are imposed upon us, you examine them in a way that you see through what government is trying to do and you will react as I do you will react uh, with some resistance. You will be 
anger and distress that government doesn't let you make the decisions about your own life. This this discussion for this hour, I hope, will be conversational. I welcome your calls, 888-367-5329, 888-4-KFAX, K-F-A-X, 888-367-5329. I'd be interested in your opinions on the topics we're going to discuss tonight. And more important than just your opinions, I'm quite interested in why you think what you think. It's not opinions that are interesting. It is the reason you reach that opinion that is, for me, always fascinating. So your calls are welcome if you wish to agree or disagree with the information that I offer to you. As an example of the types of economic liberty that we are deprived, I will present to you Instances in our everyday life, relationships with government we take for granted. But when we look under the hood, if you will, of these examples, we see how in each one of the examples I will present to you, what is really going on is the government's determination that you and I, that all of us are incompetent. And we cannot make sensible decisions about our own life. We are not free to make decisions and to act in a way that only affects ourselves. It doesn't harm anybody else. We don't want to coerce anybody else, take their stuff or harm them. We just want to live our lives and enjoy the benefits if we're good and the detriments if we're bad. That's all as a libertarian. That's all that I wish from my government protect my being, protect my stuff, and let me live my life. Now, economic liberty is an abstraction. It's hard to understand exactly what is captured by the phrase economic liberty. It's best to start with an example. The The example I'd like to pick first, but there are many, is minimum wage laws. Minimum wage laws have been in our around in our country for over just about 100 years. We all accept them. It's part of life. Now, what is a minimum wage law? A minimum wage law at standing alone seems rather benign. It is simply a law that says if you are seeking to employ one, in an employer-employee relationship, the law says, under certain conditions, most conditions, you as the employer and the employee on the other side of the transaction, even though you have reached agreement on exactly what an hour of that employee's services are worth, there's no dispute that human being who you choose to hire, you say those services are worth $6 an hour. How do you determine that? Well, you determine that based upon the market price. You determine that based upon the value that will be added to your well-being by an hour of that would-be employee services. And you make a calculation. You do the best you can. And you say to the prospective employee, 
an hour of your time to perform a specific service is worth $6 to me. The would-be employee thinks about it. The would-be employee has nobody else willing to pay that employee $6 for an hour of the time. So the employee says, works for me. The employer says, works for me. Let's do it. Two consenting adults make a decision that each decide is a good decision for themselves. In other words, that transaction, selling an hour of an employee services, that transaction is mutually beneficial to both. The employee is not forced to do it. The employee says, that's the best use of an hour of my time. The employer says, I am getting good value by paying that employee $6. Now, if the employer could find somebody to do the same services for $5, then it's a bad deal. And the employer would say, no, no, you're too expensive. Let me go somewhere else. A perfectly reasonable transaction. Both sides are better off. The employee has given up an hour of her time, but she has $6 she wouldn't otherwise have. The employer gets an hour of somebody's labor to do a chore or a task or whatever that the employer needs. The employer is better off. He's minus $6, but he has the services. What could be better than that? It is total simpatico. The trouble is, it's against the law. Now, under what principle, I challenge you, under what principle should that transaction be against the law? Now, to be sure, if there is coercion, if there is fraud, if there is deceit, if there is any kind of dishonesty, of course it's bad, but it's not bad because of the contract itself. That contract is tainted by bad acts that make the contract suspect. So we are talking about a transaction with a willing seller of services, a willing buyer of services, no coercion. Each party is happy to have entered into the transaction. Why in the world should that be illegal. I defy you to give one example why two adults, two consenting adults who agree to enter into a transaction should be prohibited to do so by government. That's not the purpose of government is to deny people their freedom. So as you can see in this very simple example, what do we have? We have Two humans, in my very simple example, two humans are deprived freedom. Freedom to make a decision that both parties want to do. So minimum, minimum wage laws at the outset are nothing other than the deprivation of freedom of two consenting adults to into a transaction that affects nobody other than those two but there, that is against the law. And we've only just started. We have another 45 minutes to go, and you will be astonished at how many everyday events in your life and transactions are tainted by the deprivation of your freedom. Once you learn how to recognize it, you can take steps 
to try to cause the situation to change. There's lots more to follow. I'll be back right after this short message from those who make this presentation possible. We'll be back in a few short minutes. And now back to Lifeline. Welcome back to Lifeline. I'm your guest host, Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, found every Sunday from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific Time on KFAX's sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Tonight, we're discussing the subject of economic liberty. We are having a conversation of sorts. Your calls are welcome, 888-367-5329, 888-367-5329, to join the discussion of economic liberty, how the government tells you you're not suited to run your own life, and we, the elite, the government in Washington, in Sacramento, Albany, and all over, we, the government simply by dint of the fact that we have been elected and you have not been, that makes us, the government, smarter than you are to make everyday decisions about your own life. What to eat, how much to pay for stuff, how much to charge for stuff, give you permission to work. Basically, the government over time has been seeking to an increasing extent to regulate your economic life. And why is this subject so important? Well, look no further than the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence, and I will quote, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable, inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness pursuit of happiness is generally understood to mean among other things it doesn't just mean walking around giggling it means being pursuing economic well-being making everyday decisions in your life it's a lot broader than just having a smile on your face the founders meant happiness in the broader sense and not only that the Declaration goes on to say, to secure these rights, the rights of pursuit of happiness, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So not only are these rights important, but the ability to pursue these rights and to protect them is the very purpose for which government is created. So this is not a new concept. Men died at Valley Forge so that we would have the rights to pursue happiness. And now we find in 21st century uh, in America these days, uh, there are many, many statutes that deprive us of those very rights that are protected in the Declaration. We were talking before the break about minimum wage laws, and I explained to you that People ought to have the right, but do not have the right to enter into a mutually beneficial exchange of one part of the transaction is selling part of hour of their time. The other part party to the transaction is buying an hour of somebody else's time at a price both parties believe to be fair. And no one else on earth is affected by that very private decision. 
By what justification could that decision made privately by two consenting adults free of force or coercion or fraud, why is that illegal? Yet it is. Now, lest some those who defend minimum wage laws, they explain in a way that makes no economic sense that, well, the minimum unless you make sure that an employee is paid a living wage, as these politicians define it, a living wage, this working individual will starve to death. Well, I dare say if if the hour of their time is worth $5, but an employer is forced to pay $7, the employer will say, no, I'm not going to overpay. I'm not going to pay you $7. And since I can't pay you $5, you're not getting any money from me. I'll find another way to get the work done. So the would-be employee who can't help it, the product or the service he's trying to sell is not worth the minimum wage. Therefore, he is deprived of the employment that that he or she so desperately wants. When discussing the subject of minimum wage laws, I'd like to point out a very important economic concept, first observed perhaps by an 18th century. He was actually a journalist, a French journalist, Frederick Bastiat who wrote about economic issues as a journalist. And he invented a concept still very much used in economic discussions called the plight of the unseen. And he points out that in when laws are passed, always there is a party who benefits from the law, perhaps. And that is the reason the law is justified but nobody notices who is harmed by the law. They are, in Bastiat's words, the unseen. And applying that concept to minimum wage laws, we see that the unseen is the employee who desperately wants to work, is hungry, wants food, wants to learn a trade. And at the moment, the employee, the would-be employee wants to work, His hour of his or her time is worth less than the minimum wage. That would-be employee who desperately wants to get into the game and start to work to learn something is denied that opportunity. That would-be employee who now cannot find a job because he's selling a product that is overpriced by dint of minimum wage laws, that unseen would-be employee never gets to work. To give you one example, and then we'll move on. Just imagine the the example always used is working in a fast food restaurant. It's a low-skill occupation, at least at the lowest level. It's only worth a certain amount, an hour of an employee's time is only worth a certain amount to the employer. The employer is required to pay, I will make a hypothetical, $7.75 for an hour of time for the cashier. 
two applicants for the job. And inner city, somewhat untrained, unskilled teenager who wants to learn how to be an employee, wants to enter the economic workforce. And this employee, would-be employee, applies for the job. Also applying is a retired college professor who has retired on a very nice pension, is kind of bored, being at home, wants to go out and interact with people, and says, well, I'll go work for in a, as a cashier in a fast food restaurant. At least I'll get out. I don't really need the money, but it's better than being at home. So two applicants for the job, a retired college professor and an inner city youth with no skills, whatever, and perhaps not yet developed workplace behavior, who is the employer going to hire? Well, the employer would be perfectly willing to hire the inner city youth at $5 an hour, but since he's required to pay $7 an hour, or $7.75 an hour, he says, well, if I have to pay that much, I want to get as much as I can for my $7.75 an hour, so I will get more from the retired college professor than I would get from the inner city youth. So therefore, the retired college professor gets the job, and the unseen inner city youth doesn't get the job. Compliments of minimum wage laws. Thank you very much. So minimum wage laws are insidious. It's a barrier to employment. It forces employers to either overpay for an hour of services or to find another way to get the job done, perhaps by machine, because humans are too expensive at $7. Nobody is helped by minimum wage laws except for the politicians who voted for them because the people who didn't get the job don't know it's because of the politician. So they don't vote against the politician. The people who did get the higher wages, they are beneficiaries and they will vote for that politician. Thus, the politician has bought votes by pandering to the higher priced employees and they have not lost votes because the one they harmed doesn't even know about it. It's it, it's behind the scenes, it's under the hood. Now I hope you begin to understand how the deprivation of economic liberty is harmful to all of us and it's harmful to society. If you haven't heard enough, there's lots more to follow. I'll be back in 30 or maybe 60 incredibly short seconds with lots more. We're going to discuss rent control, UGG, licensing of occupations, and maybe if there's time, the worst of all, certificate of need laws. Never heard about it? You'll be shocked with your learning. Please stay tuned. This is Bob Zadig. I'll be back in a few short minutes for more on economic liberty. Call in 888-367-5329. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. Welcome back to Lifeline. I'm your guest host, Bob Zadig, Z-A-D-E-K, host of The Bob Zadig Show, found every Sunday from 8 to 9 a.m., on KFAX's sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. I invite your calls for the rest of the show on this evening's topic 
of economic liberty. More specifically, the barriers that government puts up to interfere with our everyday economic transactions. Phone lines are open, 888-367-5329. That's 888-367-5329. Tonight's show has a clear libertarian orientation. Now, a lot of syllables in libertarian, libertarianism. I'd like to take just a moment to explain, it's very simple, the concept of libertarianism. Because if you understand that, you'll understand my point of view and the point of view of so many others as we discuss this evening's topics and topics on future shows. Libertarians believe that in politics, liberty is the most important value above and beyond all others. Freedom. Everybody wants freedom for themselves. A libertarian seeks to protect the liberty both of herself and of others. And that's an important distinction. When people are free, they can create more. They can create more product. They can make the world safer, more comfortable, cleaner, and better for everyone. And we're committed to the principle And principles are important. We are committed to the principle that liberty is the most important political value. Free to make your own choices about your life. Free to do whatever you want, so long as you don't do that in harm of others. We live our lives the way we want, and we ask others to leave us alone, and we will leave you alone. And the world will, and government exists to protect us from those who would harm us and take our stuff. That's a libertarian's worldview. And as we discuss this this evening's economic topics, we're discussing it with that clear orientation. Another example of the wholesale deprivation of our economic rights and our property rights is a subject which Californians and New Yorkers, and many other metropolitan areas are aware of, and that is rent control. Rent control, we all kind of know what it is. Rent control, like minimum wage laws, is economic regulation. Rent control is born of the principle that government cannot allow the free market to operate cannot allow prices to be set based upon what the market dictates a good or service is worth, but rather what government dictates a something is worth. The economic evil of that is that the free market provides information that is not available any other way. If all goods and services are allowed to reach their natural price, the balance of buyers and sellers. That will determine the price. In a free market, it is easy for everybody to determine what something is worth. And the significance of that is if a good or a service seems to be in demand, which means the price is going up, then others will say, well, I could sell that product 
for a high price because there's a big demand. I'm going to sell it. And what happens? More people enter the market. There's more of that high-priced product. What happens? The price goes down. We all benefit. And so that broadcasting of the value of a good or a service invites more people to produce it or prevents other people from producing it if there is an oversupply supply and the price goes down. With that, living in an economic environment without free markets is like living in a body that doesn't feel pain. If you if your body did not feel pain, you would not know something is amiss. And whatever's causing the pain, which you don't feel, will kill you. Pain is a message. Fix something. Prices are a message to the economic world of either you're creating something that is devalued, so don't waste your time, or there is an opportunity to make a profit by selling something for which there is a demand, and thus the shortage goes down. Without pricing, the market fails, just like without pain, the body dies. Rent control is yet another example of that dynamic in action. Now, rent control, I think, when studying the history of rent control, we go back to New York City after World War II, millions of veterans returning to a peacetime economy needed to play. They all, of course, the same general age demographic. They all, they wanted to start families. They all needed a place to live. And there was not enough apartments in New York City. Or it was felt there was not enough apartments. So therefore, the price started to go up because there was big demand, not that much supply. The government felt that's unfair for soldiers who served us so well in World War II should now be forced to pay too much in their opinion, for an apartment. So they capped what one could charge to rent an apartment to, as a short-term measure to protect returning veterans. That short-term measure is still around 80 years later. The veterans are long since gone from World War II. But rent control had appeal. After all, in society, there are more renters than landlords. Therefore, you get more votes by pandering to the renters than you do by pandering to the landlords. Therefore, rent control became, in highly populated areas, a surefire way to get reelected. Just support rent control. All rent control is, is what economists call a wealth transfer. It transfers wealth from the few landlords to the many tenants. And when you transfer money... The landlords don't have enough votes to outvote, to vote you out of office. The tenants do. Therefore, value the right to do with your property as you wish is taken from landlords who did nothing wrong and who, after all, were supplying a very needed commodity and a living space. But 
property was taken away from them in the terms that they could not realize the full economic value. How unfair is that? Now, that's the principle of rent control. To explain the the damage that rent control causes, just imagine this. Imagine a used car market where so many people rely upon used cars to supply their transportation because they cannot afford a new car. Just imagine a used car market where you were not allowed to sell a used car for more than $2,000, irrespective of what it's worth. Why would you pass such a law? Because you want to make sure that less wealthy people or poor people can afford to buy a used car. So you look at who you're benefiting. The poor person who can't afford a used car now gets to afford it because it's only $2,000. What do you imagine would happen to the market for used cars? Do you imagine there might be fewer used cars on the market if you were forced to sell a used car for only $2,000, even though it's worth $15,000? Well, you probably, if you were the owner of a used car, you wouldn't sell it, which means what has happened? Now there's fewer cars. Following that through to rent control, what happens with rent control? Duh, there's fewer apartments. Thus, we have a housing shortage. Sound familiar, San Francisco? Sound familiar, Berkeley? Sound familiar, New York City? Not enough housing. Gee, I wonder if there's a connection between the rent control and the shortage of housing. Think we're onto something? Thus, rent control ends up harming the very cohort of citizens who it's trying to protect. Because now the citizen, yes, pays cheap amount for an apartment, but there aren't any. Because nobody's going to build an apartment if you can't get market rents for it. So rent control, once again, deprives the owner of property or the owner of land of the right to use that land to satisfy a need. It deprives the would-be tenant the right to live to find an apartment or the ability to find an apartment. Why? Because the government, once again, is screwing around with the marketplace to protect the scene, the tenants, but to harm the rest of the society because the living conditions in an urban environment are declined because of the rent control. A Swedish economy economist once observed, quite recently in fact, that the most efficient way to destroy a city short of bombing it is to institute rent control. So we have rent control once again depriving landlords of the right to earn what they want in a private transaction with a tenant, denies a tenant a marketplace where there's available housing, and with no ultimate benefit to society except the politicians who voted for it get reelected because, once again, there are more tenants than there are landlords. Economic liberty is essential for the well-being of our country. 
More to follow in two short minutes. This is Bob Zadick sitting in for Lifeline's host, Craig Roberts. I'll be back in a few short minutes. If you wish to have a conversation, 888-367-5329. Look forward to your calls. I'll be back in a few short minutes. Don't go away. And now back to Lifeline. Welcome back to Lifeline. I'm your guest host, Bob Zadig, sitting for Craig Roberts tonight. Thank you, Craig, for inviting me. I'm the host of the Bob Zadig Show, found every Sunday from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. on KFAX's sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. My podcast is available wherever any other podcast is available. It's the Bob Zadig Show. I have approximately 900 or so shows. So if you have six or seven months, nothing to do, just curl up to your podcast player and listen to all my old shows. They go back about 11 or 12 years, a new show every single week. Uh, I invite your calls for the remainder of the show. We have about 15 minutes to go. 888 367-5329, 888-367-5329. We're interested in your point of view. Tonight we are discussing economic liberty. Economic liberty was with us for the first hundred years or so since our founding, and then compliments of misguided Supreme Court decisions, a very aggressive legislature who wanted to substitute their collective wisdom for our judgment on how to operate our own lives and over a hundred years or so our right to make our own economic decisions has been eroded and now if you trace the economic history uh, of liberty in this country it is today mark your calendar the low point so far and it's probably only getting worse we have less economic liberty than the founding generation than the hundred years of citizenry that followed the founding of our country we started to lose our economic liberties perhaps in the end of the 19th century we lost it big time as a result of the new deal dare i say bad deal of the new deal and in successive supreme court decisions which treated economic liberty as a second class right even though the founders felt it was supremely important the last example i'd like to share with you is a concept which you are probably vaguely aware of the topic is economic i'm sorry occupational licensing We all know that there are certain occupations in this country for which you cannot offer services unless you have a license. The easy ones come to mind, lawyers and doctors and architects and engineers, and those are easy. In our country, there are about 1,200 occupations that cannot be practiced at least not lawfully without a license of course cosmetology comes to mind being a barber comes to mind but 1200 occupations now the reason i chose this topic to discuss in the few minutes we have left is that 
Many of the occupations that are licensed are entry-level occupations that perhaps high school graduates lacking a college degree or lacking very specific training might want to carry on. Sorry, that was my microphone. Sorry about that. Uh, many occupations, uh, practices of the occupation want to carry on, but they cannot because they don't have a license. And the difficulty is that getting the license is often expensive and it takes time. And most individuals who want to start to earn a living can't afford to acquire the license. Well, that's the downside. On the upside, we say to ourselves, licensing is probably a good idea because it protects citizens from bad practitioners. That's the party line. Of course, it's dead wrong. For example, the occupation of being a florist is licensed in Louisiana. In many states, the occupation of being an interior decorator is licensed. So now in those states, it is comforting to know that we citizens of those states are protected against the evils of a bad throw pillow. And we're protected from the evils of a bad rose because the florist was un was unlicensed. So we know it's absurd to license these occupations. Well, then why does government do it? Why does government instill install barriers for people to carry on the occupation of being a florist or an interior designer. If they're bad at their job of being a designer or a florist, they won't get any business and the market will punish them. What is the reason for having a license? Well, the real reason is that those who are existing florists or interior decorators or chimney sweeps or tree trimmers, whatever the occupation is, and there are about 1,200, as I said, the people who are in that job right now, they don't want competition. Keep out the others. There'll be more work for the people who are there. So it, almost without fail, whenever the legislature makes a decision to impose a licensing regime on a certain occupation, it's not done because citizens have stormed the state house and saying, protect us from a bad tree trimmer. We're getting abused. We need licensing regime. That never happens. Why do we have licensing? Simple, because the practitioners of that occupation go to the legislature and lobby and say, we need to have a licensing regime to keep out the competition. And they have a seat at the table with their lobbyists. Legislatures will listen to them. And therefore, licensing statutes get passed, which is nothing other than a barrier to entry of others. And this is so insidious because so many of the occupations that are being licensed are those where their low income or 
lesser income people who want to become entrepreneurs or want to be in charge of their own lives and they and they are good at what they do but they can't afford the education and the testing and the licensing regime to get a license so they don't do it not only that not only that there are two very cruel examples of the insidious unfairness of licensing regimes one example incarcerated prisoners we hold the hope they get prepared to enter civilian life and to not commit crime anymore the best way to do that is to give them a trade well one of the trades that prisons try to teach is how to be a barber not it takes some training to be sure but it's learnable obviously and they can practice it while in prison so it's commonplace for prisons to offer programs where incarcerated prisoners learn to be a barber and then they are released and they are enthusiastic they have a, a marketable skill they want to enter civilian life and they want to be a barber that's what they have learned and they apply for a license how insane is that and you know what they're denied a license why because one of the standards imposed by licensing boards is good moral character and the licensing boards will tell this former prisoner no you're probably a pretty good barber but you were arrested for armed robbery and you did time you probably have bad moral character so therefore you can't be a barber how cruel is that i'll end tonight's show with one more example in california we have forest fires not enough people to put them out it's a established program in california for prisoners ha- can earn the right to be released from prisoners from prisons for the sole purpose of putting out forest fires they need the labor prisoners learn how to do it they help out on the front lines of putting out forest fires they go back and they've earned some money and they go back into their cell until they are released and they then say that was a profitable way to earn a living i want to apply to be a forest fire they get rejected bad moral character you're a prisoner can anything be more insane than that that is occupational licensing which is once again the deprivation of the right to earn an honest living by government with no residual social benefit talk about governmental overreach talk about depriving us of our rights that the constitution and the declaration offers to us it's it's cruel it's probably in many people's minds unconstitutional yet that is the world where we live in today so i ask all of you to be alert for government depriving us of our economic liberties and do what you can to fight back through the ballot box by foot voting to try to stem the tide and to to borrow a phrase from the covid era bend the curve 
So we start to reacquire the economic liberties that have been taken away from us. This is Bob Zadig thanking my host, Craig Roberts, for inviting me to be on his show tonight. He'll be back again tomorrow night for an evening of Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I have been your guest host, Bob Zadig, host of the Bob Zadig Show, every Sunday from 8 to 9 a.m. on KFAX's sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time. I hope you have enjoyed the hour we have spent together. Have a good evening. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.